In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <clears throat> the book of Ruth was written sometime around the, the time between Samuel anointing David as king and Solomon becoming king. But it was written about a family and about some events that happened back in a time that was extremely dark in the days of Israel, extremely dark in their history. It, it was, it, you know, and, and the, the thing is, is that even 
even as this author wrote, even as this author wrote, the time that he set in and the time that he, uh, the, the, the current situation that he lived in would have been so different than the time that he wrote of. I mean, there would have been great differences in, in the time frame, maybe, maybe somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years. But the author, as he looked back and he saw God's work, was able to see principles that would have even applied to him. And today, even thousands and thousands of years later, from the time of the writing of Ruth, there's this book, this little story about a, a, a mother, a widow, a, a daughter-in-law, and, and, and the coming kinsman redeemer has great relevance to us. Even, even today as we sit here in a world like ours that is so advanced and so together, you know, I mean, we think we have it all figured out. We think we know the answers to so many things. But the reality is, is that in this book, we are going to find great relevance that, that, that it's going to speak to us in, in big ways. I want to encourage you again to, to look for that, to, to read with that intent. I want to just help tie some parallels together so that you understand why I think this is going to be so big for us. The, the book of Ruth follows in our Bible the, the book of Judges. And as you come to the book of Judges, as you read the book of Judges, you come to the end of that, and the very last verse says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21, verse 25. And I want you to understand what, what this time was, this time frame was that this author was writing about. There was a, there was a time in Israel where there was no king, where, where everybody just did it how they felt like doing. And, and they lived in such a way, they followed a pattern. And if you read through the book of Judges, you can see this. They would, they would come to their, they would live their life and they would live it however they felt like they should live it. And they would do whatever they felt like doing. And, and if it pleased them, they lived that way. If it didn't please them, they didn't feel that way. And they only considered themselves until times got hard. And as things, they begin to feel that pressure and as things happen and, and, and they're, you know, all of a sudden they're enslaved by another nation, maybe dealing with famine, maybe dealing with God's judgment in some way, then they would suddenly recognize there's a problem. We don't enjoy this. It doesn't feel good to us. And they would call out on God. And they would beg God, do something for us, God. Do something. Save your people. Remember us. And everything would be great. Because he'd send a judge, and that judge would come in, and he would relieve these people. He would protect them and provide for them until the judge died. The judge would die, and people would go back to their ways of life, living only for themselves, living only for, for, with their own selfish motivations in mind. And God would bring pressure, and he would curse them, and they would deal with his judgment, and, and, and they would cry out, Oh, God, help us. See, these were dark, dark days because God was a convenience. God was something that, that was only there. He was on a shelf until he was needed, at least in their eyes. These people lived in a time where they looked back and heard stories about how God had come and visited his people. And he spoke directly to Moses. And he did amazing things among his people, leading them across an ocean on dry ground, delivering them from slavery from, from the Egyptians, teaching them and, and, and entering into covenant with them, showing them how to live, providing for them uh, uh, evidence after evidence after evidence of his presence with them. And they heard those stories and they, they thought them to be true and they, they did, they, I think they did believe them. And, and so when times would come that were hard, that's why they'd call on him. Because they did believe in some way that he was out there. And they lived in a time that looked back on that and looked forward to his coming again. They, they looked forward to this Messiah that they were taught of that would come and deliver them for good. And it would set them up as a nation for good, and they looked forward to that. And they longed for it, I think. But they stumbled through this pattern day after day after day because they heard stories of his work. 
And they expected His coming. But they overlooked how He was working in their midst and they would forget completely that He was doing these amazing things every time that He would deliver them from slavery, every time that He provided for them out of His judgment. They forgot all about His blessings. They began to ignore His tangible presence among them. And day by day, when it was necessary, they would call on Him. And then there were days that they'd forget all about Him and live however it pleased them. Does it sound familiar? We live in a time where we look back on Jesus' visit to this world, where, 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 where Jesus came and He put on flesh and He dwelt among us and He worked in amazing ways. Amazing ways. People walked that couldn't walk. People saw that couldn't see. People talked that couldn't talk. And heard that couldn't hear. Amazing things were done. He fed the hungry. He helped the poor. We look back and we trust in it. We know it was true. We know He was a real man. We know these things really happened. And we look forward to His coming. We look forward to that day when all the promises will be fulfilled and His restoration comes and all things will be made new. Oh, what a day that will be. It's going to be so good. But here in America especially, we are a self-sufficient people who do as we please and who depend on the Lord when it is convenient. It's so easy to wake up in the morning and go to work thinking that I am in control thinking that I am earning that paycheck, thinking that I am, am, am securing my finances, thinking that, that I am making my family safe until something bad happens. I mean, when do we call on God? When do we call on God? When do we really depend on God? I mean, maybe you don't agree with me. But if September 11, 2001 taught us anything other than about the evil that's in the world, it taught us that as a nation, we depend on God when we need God. If Hurricane Katrina taught us anything, it's not that we don't care about New Orleans and didn't react fast enough, but that we as a people depend on God when we need God. God bless America, right? See, this book, this book was written to people that were experiencing things just like us. It's extremely relevant. Truth is always relevant. Always meaningful. The principles are real. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Irony is going to be a big theme of the message today. You see, this book, though, I don't want you to get the wrong idea because this book, it's not about this woman, Ruth. I mean, she's, she's pretty important. She's a main character. Naomi, she's a main character. The people that we're going to meet in the weeks to come, they're, they're important to the story. See, this book's not about them, though. God's the star of the show. The real, the real reason that this book was written was that so everyone who followed after it and that read its words could see that God is in control and that He can be trusted in all things. You see, there's two themes. There's two themes that, that run throughout this book. And it's not first and foremost about what, what Ruth wanted or what Ruth experienced, but it's about what God has done. It's, it's about His providence and about His redemption. And that's what we're going to see repeated over and over in the weeks to come. God is providentially taking care of things in the world. He is sovereign over all things. And that there is a, a truth that we don't deserve to know and that we can't earn ourselves, but it is called redemption. And He is providentially working out His redemption. And we see that so clearly in this book laid out for us in a way that, that, that we couldn't expect, that we couldn't earn, that, that these people didn't even, they didn't even deserve to be part of the story. 
<laughs> they didn't. It's really kind of a Jerry Springer kind of thing if you think about it and read the words and understand what's going on, understand the history behind it. These people didn't even deserve to be there, but God is glorified because in their fallenness, He is going to demonstrate His providence and He is going to demonstrate what redemption is all about. As we go through this, we're going to need to understand what those two things, and so let me just give you some working definitions. Providence. What is providence? It's basically God ordering the events and history to, the events and history to bring about what He has decreed will happen. God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. He orders things and brings things about and uses events to bring about His will. It's based on His eternal attributes of power. He's all-powerful. There's nothing He can't do. His, his eternal attribute of presence, He's ever-present. There's never been a time that He wasn't present, and there's never been a place that He wasn't present. He is present at all times in all places, and it's based on His eternal attribute of knowledge. He knows all things God doesn't have to learn. He doesn't wake up and, and, and go to school and learn things. See, he wrote the book. He knows all things. He doesn't have to learn them. So built on those things and understanding those things, we recognize that God works all things to make sure that what he has decreed will happen. That's providence. It rests securely in this sovereignty, in this, in this fact that he is over all things. He controls, he rules, he commands all things. He owns all things. And it's also governed by his goodness. You see, if God was providential, or if, if, if God's sovereignty stood by itself, if God's sovereignty was only sovereign, if he was only sovereign, he could, he could just wipe people out and not give a concern. He could, he could, um, act in ways that, that were evil and, and malicious. Now he has the right to wipe anybody out he wants to. Don't hear me wrong. He does. And if you read the Old Testament, he has. But he does that always working towards his will and thinking about the good of his people. See, God is not only a sovereign God, but he is a good God. And without both of those attributes, without both of those truths about him, you have another God. And he does things selfishly, maliciously, or he never rules sovereignly and is only, oh, well, I just love you so much. I'm just going to give you what you want. Forget what you need. I just want you to feel good. It's another God altogether. Those two things make up God's providence. And his redemption. Redemption, <laughs> it rests in his providence. If God wasn't provident, if he wasn't sovereign over all things, if there was no such thing as his providence, redemption, well, there would be no assurance of it. There would be no way that we could expect it. There's, there's no way that you and I can sing songs about what God's going to do, that he's going to save us, that he's going to justify us, that he's going to sanctify us. There's no reason to sing about the cross because if God's not provident... Redemption doesn't matter because there's no way you can count on it. You see, we can trust in redemption. We can look to redemption because God is provident. What is redemption? It's seen in the life of a person. It's simply buying them back from something. Remember, God owns all things. All things ultimately belong to God. Whether they look like His or not, He is over them. And when He wants something, He can redeem it back to Himself. Redemption. You're mine. That's redemption. In, in, in the thought of being a slave into sin, being, being made a slave into sin because of who we are as sinful people, God looks at us and buys us out of slavery and redeems us to himself. Makes us free to be a slave to him. That's redemption. We're not going to see the work of redemption today necessarily. Providence is going to be the overarching theme of today's message. If you get one thing out of today's message, if you get one thing and nothing else, I want you to walk away knowing this. <laughs> uh, two things. Those were dark days that the author wrote about. We live in dark days. God ruled in those dark days, and God rules today. If you get nothing else from the rest of this message, as we start into these pages and verses of Scripture, remember that. There were dark days, 
and God ruled. Today's dark days and God rules. So let's just begin walking through that with that in mind. The backstory. Let's, let's understand what's happening. All of Ruth 1 is really an introduction to the rest of the story. It gives us several years worth of, of life wrapped up in these first 22 verses. Then she spends, or not she, but the author spends the rest of the three chapters describing what happens in just a few, uh, of a few weeks, maybe a few months. But in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, we really come to this place where, where we really get the backstory, where we really get the introduction, and, and we can understand what's happening. In the days when the judges ruled, that's dark days. Remember, that's a tough time. There's bad stuff happening. And then it says there's a famine in the land. No, I, you just got to stop and think. People are hungry. Don't just read past that. There's a famine in the land and forget about it. People are hungry. They're hurting. They're suffering. These are God's people that are dealing with this problem, with this pain. They, they don't have food. They don't know where the next food or their next meal might be coming from. They don't know when it's going to rain and when their crops are going to grow. And they don't know how they're going to eat. They don't know what's going to happen. They are suffering. It is tough. He's dealing with his people. Maybe even judgment. I, I, I can't say. I don't know. It doesn't tell us specifically. There's a lot of discussion about that. If God decided to judge his people in that way, he can do it. But does he use it in some other way? Maybe it's not judgment. Maybe he's just ordering things so that things happen in a way that brings about his will. That's possible. But here's a lesson we should learn. Here's a lesson that we need to, we need to know. These people, the Israelite people, had entered into a conditional covenant with God. He, they stood before this mountain and God said, Hey, if you will obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And they said, we want you to be our God. We love you. We want you. We'll follow you. We'll obey you. We'll do what you say. We'll follow your commands. We'll listen to what you have to say. And that lasted about 40 days or so. Because then they made a calf and they worshipped another God and were excited because this calf brought them out of Egypt. But anyways, nonetheless, that's what they said. They entered into a conditional covenant. I'm just going to tell you, if you come to God and you and you, you stand before God and he says, I want you to do this, and if you do this, I'll do this. If you enter into a conditional covenant like that with him, he's an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. You're not going to keep a secret from him. You're not going to keep, you're not going to get by. You better live in it. You better do what he says. You better follow his commands. You better better fulfill your side of the covenant. So it's, it's quite likely that these people had, you know, that's the way of the days, days of the judges. It's quite likely that they had entered into sin and God was judging them. And if that's what was happening, he's not any less good. He's following through with what he said he would do. But we can't mistake what he was doing there with what he does in the lives of Christians. We can't, we can't take that apart and say, well, well, he did it to them. He must be doing it to us. We've got to be careful with that because we don't live as believers in a conditional covenant. We can't earn His grace. We can't stand up and ever come to a place where we make Him accept us. Look at what I'm doing for you, God. You have to accept me. I've never killed anyone. I've never, I've always given my tithe. I've, I've, I've always done, I've, I've always been good to my family. I, I work hard so that they can eat their food. It doesn't matter. Well, I shouldn't say that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But it doesn't earn you grace. See, the covenant that we're in, the covenant that we enjoy as believers is conditional not on us, but on the blood of Jesus Christ. He died. It's His blood that's shed that makes us righteous. It's Him taking our sin and giving us His righteousness that gives us a place where we can stand with boldness and courage before our God. Not in our own work, but in His. So here they are experiencing this conditional covenant, and they could be being judged, not like us, it's a different deal, but they could be being judged, and God says, you're going to be hungry. I'm not, I'm not letting it rain. I'm not going to give you food. You're going, to, you're going to be hungry. And people are suffering. See, we also don't want to look at the world around us and think, oh, man, God judged that place. Hurricane Katrina. Man, God judged New Orleans. They are sinful people. He judged New Orleans for living the way they do. Now, if you've ever been in New Orleans and Mardi Gras, you know it's a sinful group of people. If you ever lived in Louisiana, you know there's a simple group of people there. And if God wants to judge them, absolutely he can. He's God. But you know what's interesting is that as we sit here in Missouri, religious Springfield, you know, the, the buckle of the Bible belt, depending on our religion to make us worthy before God, 
really feeling good about the things that we do and the way we live our lives? Are we any less sinful? Are we in any less need of grace? Are we any less deserving of God's judgment? Oh, we're a religious people. Hey, so we're the Pharisees. Jesus got all over them. You see, we can't look around at our world and think that, and that oh, God's judging. You must have sinned. We've got to be careful. We don't have that kind of knowledge. We don't have that kind, of, that kind of guarantee. Could God be judging? Absolutely. But I would suggest this. I would suggest that everything that happens... Every, every problem that we face, every difficulty that's in our life, every, every calamity that comes across nations, the typhoon in, in or not the typhoon, but the, 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 the big waves, tsunami, the tsunami in Indonesia. So it's tea, you know, I mean, come on. The tsunami in Indonesia, the, the earthquake in, in Haiti, the, the hurricane in, in, in uh, New Orleans, the, the evil acts that happened in, on September 11, 2001. All of these things happening are a result of sin, and they're God's judgment against all of sin. We suffer because sin exists. Suffering happens because sin happens. Suffering is because sin is. And so as we sit here in our little box and we look around at the world, we've got to be careful not to cast judgment, God's judgment on other people, not recognizing that we deal with the same things. It's a common problem in, in, in humanity. It's a common lot that we all experience. Suffering happens because sin happens. It's the real deal. That's the way it is. And so here they are experiencing famine. Sinners just like us experiencing hardship, experiencing problems, wanting to eat, but they can't do it because they can't provide for themselves. And here's this guy, Elimelech. Pretty wise guy, I think, or he thinks he is anyway. Sure, sure thinks he knows what he's doing. He says, you know what, family of four, we're going to head to Moab. And this is really where it gets ironic. And you're not going to see the irony if I don't stop and just tell you what some of the meanings of the words are. It's really ironic. They live in a city called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. The people in Bethlehem, 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 they're hungry. They got no bread. But they live in a city called the house of bread. That starts the irony. But this man, Elimelech, in all of his wisdom says, you know what, we're going to go to Moab. Now let me tell you just a little, about, a little bit about Moab so that you'll get this. Moab was a people who were cursed by God. When that nation started, when the very first Moabite lived, his name was Moab. He was the offspring of Lot. You remember Lot? See, Lot lived in a city called Sodom. You remember Sodom? I mean, if you grew up in church, you probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and how God went and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot ran away and, and his daughters were with him and, and his wife looks back turns into a pillar of salt. That's the story. So Lot goes into the mountains and he hides with his daughters. Well, they get it in their heads. They're desperate. These, these girls are desperate. We've got to have babies. Well, who's going to carry on our name? So one night, the first daughter gets her dad drunk. She sleeps with him and gets pregnant. I told you, this is like Jerry Springer. I mean, Really? If that wasn't enough, she's like, hey, you know what I did? I got dad drunk and I slept with him. I'm pregnant. You ought to do the same thing. So you know what she does? She gets her dad drunk. He passes out. She has sex with him. Gets pregnant. You want to know who Moab was? He was Lot's son from his daughter. Pretty freaky. It's dark days, baby. It's the real deal. Look at this stuff. It's crazy. It probably happens in Reed Spring. Who knows? I can tell you it's real. Don't tell your dad I said that. <laughs> but it's the real deal. I mean, these people were living life. They were, they were making decisions based on what they could see and what they knew. Bad decisions, maybe. But this is where Elimelech, he's going to bring his family to this, this place where this people, that's where they started. And you know, it doesn't really get better for Moab. When, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they, they're, coming, they're walking through the desert on the way to the promised land, following God. Do, God's doing big things. I mean, he's wiping out armies. 
He's providing for them all the way. And, and, and they come to this place called Moab, and they're like, hey, can we buy some food, some bread? Here, they wanted to buy bread. You know what Moab said? Nope. You can go around. We won't, we're not even going to let you go through our nation. And God says, you know what? You're cursed for ten generations. And this is who Elimelech is leading his family to. Moab, this place that wouldn't give the Israelites bread, suddenly becomes the place of hope for a man named Elimelech. Is that not ironic? The house of bread has no bread. Let's go to the people who told us no. Let's go see if they'll do something for us. Let's go get some food. I don't know what kind of thought goes into that. I don't, I don't know what he was, what he was thinking about or, or what the exact process of that was. But I don't think Mo, or Elimelech was living up to his name. See, the irony continues. Elimelech's name means my God is king. I'm betting that he didn't even consider God as he thought about going to Moab. I'm betting that he didn't even consider how it might look to God. He says, you know what? My family's hungry. God's not providing. I know where we can get some food. 50 miles away. 50 miles away. Maybe, maybe 60, but, but, but really, I mean, not that far. There's food. I'm going there to get some. So Elimelech heads off, probably not thinking about God. I'm just, I think we can learn something here. You know, we face decisions every day. I mean, you, you, you faced a decision in where you were going to go to church this morning or whether you were going to go to church this morning. You, you had to decide what clothes you were going to put on. You had to decide um, um, which car to drive or you had to decide what to have for breakfast. There's all kinds of decisions that we face every day. In, in over and over through the day. We face these decisions. And you know what? We look at all kinds of things when we make those decisions. I can't afford it. I really want that. And we weigh out these priorities and these facts that we look at as we, as we make these decisions. I think there's one thing that should overrule all of them and should be a priority in all of them. Does it honor God? Elimelech, my God is king. But I'm going to go someplace to a people that don't honor him, that worship another God, that couldn't care less about him, and I am going to find my sustenance and provision from them. I bet he didn't even consider his God. Perfect example of this. We're going to be moving. There's big decisions to be made. We could take the short-term easy answer. We've been offered the building right next door. It's half the space, less than a little over half the space. Be very uncomfortable, very temporary, and we'd have to go through this move all over again in just a couple of months. But the, the easy way, the, the answer is right there. Just take it. That's one perspective. Or uh, let's look at all of these facts. Let's, let's, let, let's look at all the facts. We don't want to move again. Let's look at all the facts and, 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 and do the research. And I think we should. I, we absolutely should. But let's not forget to wonder where we go, where we're going to end up. Is it going to honor God? That should always be the top priority. Guys, when you lead in your family, when you lead in your family, don't, don't think that earning fat cash is the best thing you can do for them. More importantly than earning fat cash is teaching them about Jesus. It's, it's about living in faith. More important than giving them what they want, more importantly than giving them what they want is showing them what they need, Jesus. Men, as you lead in your family, as important as spending time with them and having special time set aside for them, is having a time where they see you sacrifice for your God. For, for you to make choices for your God. For you to consider that it's more important for them to see you sacrificing than at times spending time specifically with them. Because you know what's going to happen if you only ever spend time specifically with your family? They're not going to learn to sacrifice for their God. 
You know what's going to happen if all you do is bring home the cash and not demonstrate faith? They're going to love you for your cash. And when you don't have it anymore, they're going to find something else. You want to know what's going to happen if you don't demonstrate the, 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 the things that Jesus has done for them? They're going to find something in this world that fills them. It's going to lead to a bad place. Ladies, single guys, prepare for this now. Begin that practice now. Consider the decisions you make. Consider God first. Does this honor Him? Ladies, if you're single... Don't marry a guy who doesn't honor God. Don't even date a guy who doesn't honor God. You want to know why? Because he just might bring you to Moab. And when you get there, die on you and leave you all alone in a godless place. Ladies, don't date a guy that doesn't... I don't care if his name is my God is King. If his actions don't show it, Don't buy into the hype. Because the reality is, is that He will lead you to death and despair. If it's a guy that doesn't care about God, don't get into that. Consider Him. Eliminate decisions, uh, uh, the, the things that He was deciding, the decisions I have to make for this church, and uh, along with Brent, I have to make for this church, the things that we're going to have to follow in, They are going to have long-lasting consequences. You know what? The decisions you make today have long-lasting consequences. Well, not decisions like, what am I going to eat? No, they do. Gluttony is just a socially acceptable sin. I know, I struggle with it. I love to eat, I love food. It's socially acceptable. So it doesn't get a lot of hype, doesn't get a lot of play. It matters. Every decision matters. Honor God. Does this honor God? Does the way I use my money honor God? Does the way I use my time honor God? Does, does the things that I put into my body honor God? Do the things that, the, 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 the things that I enjoy doing, do they honor God? I don't know. Every decision matters though. And so here they are. Naomi's left in a godless land. She, she's lost her husband. She's sad and she's crying. You know, and of course she's upset. And then it only gets worse because her sons die. And here she left with these two, two daughters-in-law that aren't even from her own people. But I, I think she loved them. I think there was a real relationship there. I think there was a deep relationship there. I think there was a real emotional connection. I, I think they cared deeply for one another. But here she is all alone in the world, or at least that's how she appears to be. Or that's how it looks to her. She's all alone. Oh, let me tell you about this. Malon and Kilion, just one more piece of irony. Malon and Kilion, while their dad didn't live up to their name, they did. Malon means sick, and Kilion means, or Kilion means wasting away. So sick and wasting away die. I mean, really, I don't know how they got wise. Who names their kids that? I mean, really, think about it. I mean, really. How would you like that? I'm just going to call you wasting away. I'm going to call you sick. Oh, I don't, that's not good. You know, really. But that's their names. Sick and wasting away. They die. She's all alone in the world except for her daughters-in-law. And here's what happens. If you continue on it, it starts, picks up in verse 6. Here's what happens. She's in Moab, and she hears from Bethlehem that things are starting to happen there. God has visited His people. He's there, and and He's blessing them, and crops are growing. The famine is going to be over. They're going to get to eat. So like most of us would do, she's ready to go. You know, this is typical still. Even today it happens. When things are going good, we're all on God's side. If they don't go our way, let's go somewhere else and figure out what we need to do to take care of ourselves. But when things start happening back with God again, oh, I need to get back with Him. You know, that's the typical thing. We all deal with it. We all do it. Something that we all, we all make decisions around it. We all live our life in that way. I mean, I, I know we don't really want to admit that out loud, but it happens. Think of your story. Think of where you've been. 
See, it's a good thing that God's more faithful than we are. It really is. So she decides she's going to go home. And on her way home, she's thinking about what's going on. Her, she's got her daughter's, daughter-in-law's in tow, and they're, they're going along. And I'm sure that there's all kinds of things happening around them. And they're talking and enjoying the, the, the trip, I imagine. And, you know, things are, that's hopeful. Oh, man, we're going to get to eat some good food and see some people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And it's going to be such a good time. Oh, wait a minute. You two are going to suffer there. Why would you come with me? I have nothing to offer. I'm not going to have any more sons, and so you can't have any more husbands. And so if you come to my people, you're going to be outcasts. You're you're not going to belong. Nobody's going to care about you. She starts thinking of of things, and I mean, she's just like, "Well, well, wait a minute. And if I have kids... She's forgetting all about everything else and all of a sudden becomes so overwhelmed with the fact that all she can see is that these people are going to suffer. It's going to be bad for you. It's worse for me, she says. It's worse for me, but you ought to just go back to your families. You ought to go back and, and enjoy, your, enjoy your life and find another husband and, and, and live life the, the way you should. Because if you come with me, you're not virgins. Strike one. You're, 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 I don't have anybody that can, that can help you. I, I don't have anybody that can redeem you. I don't have any more sons. Because the, the, the culture or the tradition was that if Malon and Kilion had had brothers, I don't know what she'd have named them. Maybe like uh, Death, you know, and, and I don't know. It's scary to think about. But if, if she had had other sons, they would have married these girls and they would have redeemed them and, and they would have become... Basically, they would have stood in the stead of their brother and they would have had kids and carried on their brother's line. That's a little freaky weird. More Jerry Springer stuff happening. But it's the truth. That's what, that's what they did. And, and if, I, if I had these sons, you know, well, they could redeem you, but I don't have any of those and I'm not going to have any of them, so strike to you. You're not going to be happy with me. And there's nobody there that's concerned about us in any way. There's nobody there that can do anything for us in any way. I don't even know how I'm going to make it. Strike three, you have no hope. You better go back to your families. You better go back and, and, and live life in your godless society, in your, in, 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 in your own little perspective, and in your own little world, following after all of the things that are just going to lead you to death because I can't make you any happier. That's ultimately what she's teaching her. Now, verse 15 through 18, I want, you to, I, want, I want to just stop and I want to read this because I, I think it's, it's a beautiful explanation of what happens in the middle of this. Now, here they are crying and talking and crying some more. You know, that's kind of, that's typical. Here they are just upset and crying and talking and crying and talking and crying. And it comes to verse 15 where she's, she, Naomi is talking to Ruth and, and Orpah has already decided, well, I'm going to go back. And Ruth is clinging to her mother, her mother-in-law, and she says, in verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where I go or for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I mean, this is a testimony or a, a, a confession of her loyalty to Naomi. I mean, it's not just to Naomi. I, I don't know what Ruth saw. I don't know what she experienced. I don't know what her, her husband might have taught her in those times, in those 10 years that they were married. But she saw something that made her want to exchange everything she knew, to change her godless ways, to leave her whole family, to leave her whole life behind, and come to this place that Naomi was going, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. This is a conversion. I mean, this is a total change of person. She's giving up everything so she can be in this place. And it's not something simple like a marriage covenant that says... Until death do us part. Where you die, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to live there. I'm going to continue there. This is going to be my people until the day I leave this earth. I'll be buried there. See, this is real. She is giving up everything. Decisions we make, they have long-lasting consequences. It matters what we do. Orpah? Okay, I'll, I'll go back. Seems like I'll have it better back there. She walked away from God. She walked away from His people. She walked away from His provision. Ruth is about to step into a world where she's going to experience it all. And she doesn't even really understand it. She doesn't even know it yet. But that's what's happening. You see, God in His providence... In his providence, he's working and these events are happening and he's ordering all things to begin to happen in his way so that his will is done. Ruth doesn't even get it yet. She doesn't even understand. And maybe the day she died, she still didn't. But that decision mattered. and brought lasting consequences that will play out in the rest of the story. So here they come. They come home. Home sweet home. You would think that when they got there, Naomi having been gone for so long. And there's a place that's saved for them. Elimelech owned land in Bethlehem. He owned stuff there. He ha She had a place to go. You would think, well, what, what's it feel like after you've been traveling to get home and sleep in your own bed? There's a special feeling. Oh, man, I can really sleep tonight. My bed is so comfortable. To be home. Home sweet home. Naomi shows up and people start recognizing her. And what's she do? Don't call me Naomi. You wanna, here's, here's more irony. Don't call me Naomi. Pleasant. Call me bitter. Now I'm just going to tell you, I don't think Naomi lived up to her name either. Because I don't think this is probably the only time Naomi got upset that God wasn't working the way that she wanted him to. Call me Bitter. Come on. Wait a minute. I got bitter. You ever been bitter? You ever been mad at God? Angry that He didn't do what you thought He should do? That, you, that He didn't work in the way you expected Him to work? He didn't do what you told Him to. You ever been bitter? Hmm. guess we can't hammer Naomi too hard, can we? Because we all do it. We all experience it. But all of this, all of this, think about it. Think about Naomi. Naomi comes home. Should be such a good time re reuniting with friends, seeing people you hadn't seen for years. Call me bitter. You know these people. They want you to know everything they suffer. Now, I mean, I don't, don't hear me saying, when, when somebody asks, don't lie. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. Liar. You're suffering. We struggle. It's what we do. It's just life. Maybe not every day, but a lot of days. How you doing? I'm trusting in God. He's going to get me through. Now, on the other side of that, I don't know that I'd take it to Naomi's extent. Call me bitter. I'm suffering more than everybody else. Look at me. I went away full and I came back empty. You know what she's saying to the people who stayed and suffered in that, in, the, in that famine? You couldn't even imagine what I've suffered and what I've lost. My suffering is so much worse. You know what I'd say to Naomi if I was one of those people in that famine? We stayed. We trusted God and we were hungry, but He provided. We suffered. People probably died. We lost. And you went away chasing after some dream. Following some crazy husband off to, to make your own way. To forget about God's provision. And you're going to come and, and complain to us about your suffering? You left a size 8, you came back a size 16. We're size 2. We're hungry. We've been suffering. Who are you to, to, to think that you suffered more than us? See, suffering, it is, because sin is. But the reality is, suffering, it turns ourselves inward. It, it makes us think only about ourselves. Suffering is common to humanity. We all deal with it. I'd say, suck it up, sissy. 
Quit your crying. Put your big curl panties on. That's what, I, that's, that's what I like. Put your big girl panties on. I mean, really? And you came back empty? Imagine what Ruth's thinking. What am I, a chopped liver? Did you forget I'm here? Did, did, did you not hear what I said to you on the road? I mean, come on. That was pretty amazing. That was moving. I've committed my whole life to you. To where you're at. To be in with you. And you're empty? If I was Ruth, <laughs> I don't know that I'd remain as loyal as Ruth did. But that's me. Oh, I'm bitter. Wait a minute, Naomi. You've been gone. And you come back just in time to enjoy the provision of God? They come back just in time for barley harvest? This house that's had no bread is suddenly going to have bread? And you're... You're upset? You're bitter? You're going to experience God's provision. You're going to experience God provide and, and, and work a miracle in your life. And you're bitter? Who are we to be bitter? Pretty relevant stuff, huh? In all of this, in all that she experienced, in all that she lost, in her husband's decisions to go to this place, in the loss of her sons, in the gaining of this daughter-in-law that committed her life to being where she was at and, and making her people her people and her God her God, in all of that, God was working. We're not going to see it just yet. There's the rest of the story that's coming. Those were dark days, and God worked in them. Today is dark days, and God works in them. He is providentially working all that He has willed. All that He has decreed to happen will happen. And so we can continue singing songs, You have saved me. You, will, you, you justified me. You will sanctify me. We can continue singing those songs in praise. We can continue singing about how He has loved us so magnificently. Because He is providentially working. We can continue to sing songs that call Him to, to lead us to the cross, to remind us of the cross, to remind us who we were and what He had to do for us. Because He's working. It's real. It's powerful. He knows what we need. <laughs> He's with us. Present with us. Scripture teaches that He lives within us. Sometimes we get bitter. Sometimes we live the way we want to live. Today I want you to remember that no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you felt, this God who you call God is working. He's real. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's so good. He is so good. And everything you've experienced, as hard, as difficult as it is, He will work for your good. That's the promise that everyone who is in Christ enjoys. And He's powerful enough and good enough to make it happen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. 